Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest from the world of business, entrepreneurship, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. I'm excited to welcome my guest today, Laura Gassner Otting. She is a Washington Post bestselling author, keynote speaker, media personality, executive coach. She is a kick in the ass wrapped in a warm hug. I love that. That's great. And she helps innovators, idealists, and iconoclasts get unstuck in their thinking and achieve extraordinary results. She inspires audiences to push past doubt and indecision and just get things moving. She is a best-selling author of Mission Driven, a book for those moving from profit to purpose, and her latest book, Limitless, long title here, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. And I had the opportunity to talk, uh, to hear her talk a few weeks back on Scott McGregor's Talent Champion Council Masterclass. That's a mouthful. And I knew I had her on my show. Laura, Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Adam. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. And as I mentioned in our in our pre-chat here, you know, I love to take people through the career, early career. And your early career is fascinating. To say you've been there and done that would be an understatement, right? To kind of been there and done that. But let's bring everyone kind of up to speed here. So you started out your career after dropping out of law school, which we'll get to in a little bit. And you ended up as a campaign staffer for former President Bill Clinton. Um, what was your first impression of Bill and how did President Clinton, sorry, <laughs> and, and, and did that, like, what was your first impression and did that impression hold up over time from the first time you met him? Oh, uh, well, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, so, we, we don't go light here, Laura. Yeah, no, I love it. So, so I will tell you that I was in law school. I hated law school. I wanted nothing to do with law school. I, I, I was six weeks in realizing that I'd made a huge mistake. I didn't want to be there. I, I didn't want to become a lawyer. So I did what really everybody does when they're in a terrible position in life. I, I dated a guy who was awful. <laughs> just, just one of those guys you're like, don't bring home to mother, right, type guys. And I used to ride my bike to campus and, uh, and it was raining one day. And, and he said, hey, I'll give you a ride home. We'll put your bike in the back of my IROC Z, which tells you everything you need to know about this. Wow, guy, I have right? not There's heard a, the IROC Z since high school. Right. But... Did I just paint a visual picture for you or what? So we put my car, my bike in the back of his IROC Z and, uh, you know, Def Leppard or whatever is blasting. And he's like, but I just want to stop at this guy's campaign office. He's running for president. And I was like, Governor who from where? Arkansas, you gotta be kidding me. Like George H.W. Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had a 91% approval rating. It was like any Democrat who was running was like a sacrificial lamb. Like nobody expected anybody to beat Bush. 
so we walk into this campaign office in this tiny little strip mall in Gainesville, Florida. Like kids, this is where you got information before the internet, right? Like you actually have to like, go to somebody's, things. right? Imagine that you had to pick a paper that had issues, you know, stances on them. And when we walked in, there was this tiny little black and white TV in the corner of the room. And then Governor Bill Clinton, you know, dark head of hair, was giving this impassioned speech about this idea that there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And he offered, which by the way, I still believe, and he offered as a policy solution service, community service in exchange for college tuition. And I was like, oh my God. Groundbreaking. Amazing. Makes sense. That needs Actionable. to happen. Yeah, that needs to happen. So I started volunteering on the campaign, and three weeks later, all four principals, Bill and Hill and Alan Tipper, all came, and we got 36,000 people in this tiny podunk town to show up for a rally, and the national office was like, who are those volunteers? We need to get them on staff. So my first impression of him was this like larger-than-life idealist optimist that we can solve our problems you know, that what got us into the problem might be also what gets us out of the problem and it's okay and we can all do it together and we're all in it. And it just spoke to every bit of like, you know, civic minded, want to be a leader, community, you know, all of that, that I had that service mentality. So my first impression was like, hell yeah, like this is actual, practical, practicable. I, I was so fired up. So I dropped out of law school and I joined the campaign. What did your parents say when you told them you were dropping out? Uh, they didn't say much because I didn't tell them for a while. <laughs> so they got could, that bill in the mail. Yeah, I still tried to like do school, you know, yeah. remotely. It didn't work very well. My grades were pretty bad. And, and, and so they said about the same thing my uh, dean of the law school said, which is this is the biggest mistake of your life. You'll always regret it. And Bill Clinton ended up in the White House and I ended up in the White House. So I didn't regret it. But to the second part of your question, the bigger part of your question, my first impression of him was like, wow, right? He was young. He was younger than any politician we'd seen yeah. up until that Charisma. Point. Charisma. Charisma. I never believed that you were born with charisma until I met Bill Clinton. And then it was like, he walks into a room and even to this day, he's like a wizened old, like vegan version of himself, right? He's I like, know, it still like, does. And still like the light in his eyes, like it, he he changes the gravitational force of any room he moved, he walks into. My, my feelings about him are somewhat fraught, I must say, because at the time, I didn't really fully understand power dynamics. I was 20 years old, 21, just turned 21 yeah. years old. I didn't really understand it. I was like <laughs> madly in love. And I didn't understand, like my issue with him and Monica, I didn't think it was impeachable. I thought it was divorceable, but I didn't think it was impeachable. Now, later, it's been 30 years. I understand power dynamics and Me Too and all of those things. But at the time, it's a different time. It's a different time. But at the not, time, not that it's right. Not that it's it was right by it, any means whatsoever. But it was a different. It was a different time, and I think our sensibilities and our expectations were different. But I did have a lot of photos of me and him. I took them off the wall for like a good year because I was so angry. Not that he took advantage of this young woman, which I didn't think was taking advantage at the time. I do now. now. Um, but at the time, I was so upset. Not that he had an affair, whatever. FDR, JFK, like they're. Oh, yeah, all I was about to say JFK's been been you right. know glamorized with his uh, extracurricular right. activities. Right. I was more upset that he did it in the Oval Office. 
Like, it's like the sanctity of the office. Again, I am such a big giant nerd about like the bully pulpit and service and all and, of it. And I was so like, Bill, I, I did not agree with a single policy stance of Ronald Reagan, but the man never took his suit jacket off in the Oval Office. Such was his reverence for the place. And so that's interesting. That was what upset me. It's, it's interesting. I actually never shared this little tidbit of a story. So I, I interned when I was in college. I went to University of Buffalo, and I interned for the Buffalo Sabres. And it was, I forgot what year, there was a Democratic, there was a convention. And he came around for a pre, to, to tour the facility, and I was working there. And they actually assigned me to go with his, uh, with his group. And yeah. I got to meet him for about 30 seconds. And I shook his hand, and I got to talk to him. And that was, like, one of the highlights of my life that I talk about is Bill Clinton. And, like, even I like, you know, and, and I've had um, former New York Governor David Patterson on the show, too, and he talks a lot about his relationship with Bill Clinton. And he says, I fully understand the attraction, male and female, to Bill Clinton. Sure. Not even in a sexual way, because of his charisma is a magnet. Yes. And it's something that Governor Patterson has never experienced in, in his life. So, White House, <laughs> fun little question here. What, what's kind of the coolest thing about being in the White House? Aside from being the other, like, like something like some people wouldn't know, like, I mean, I've never been in the White House. Like, what's kind of cool, especially when you're on the inside and you have some access? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of cool things. Like, there's a bowling alley. There's a movie theater. There's, um, there, they, there's like little M&Ms with like little White House stamps on them. I still That's have, cool. I still have a, I still have White House stationery that I, that I stole 30 you, years you got, ago. You, like, why wouldn't you? But I mean. Honestly, I, this is gonna. This is this is sort of funny. I think the coolest thing that about the White House is the thing you realize the day after you leave the White House, which is that when you're Laura Gassner, I wasn't married then. When you're Laura Gassner from the White House, everybody takes your calls, and when you're just Laura Gassner from insert whatever company here, no one. Gives nope. A shit. <laughs> and 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 what would you, like, looking looking back on that time now, from the perspective that you have, you know, decades later. Um, what would you say that one key takeaway is that you learned that you've you've applied, you know, since then? Oh, that everybody's making it up as they go along. <laughs> everybody. We're flying even, the airplane. We're building the airplane as we fly it, as we like to say, I mean, right? Even Bill Clinton was making it up as he goes along. He didn't have any experience being president. He didn't have nobody's experience Look being Obama. the leader of the free world. Right. I mean, like they say, like I, one of my very good friends is a woman by the name of Carrie Lorenz, who was the first female F-14 fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy. Now, the fighter pilots in the U.S. Navy, as you know, they don't just land planes. They land planes on postage stamps in the middle of like on a moving foot right boat right, crazy moving <laughs> boat and and they stop like they come in on these 45 million dollar machines and stop in 1.6 seconds right i mean it's just it's insane and i was talking to her one day and i was like how do you get comfortable doing that she's like well it ate 10,000 hours because not one single fighter pilot in the navy the first time they land that plane has 10,000 hours of landing no. like bill clinton barack obama reagan bush whoever you yeah. name it they didn't have 10,000 hours of experience being president. Literally every single person in the building is making it up as they go along. That's crazy. So how do we make the transition <laughs> from politics into executive search? How the hell does that happen? <laughs> well, <laughs> It's always funny, by the way, too, because I, I like to ask anybody who's been in the, the talent access uh, industry, as I like to call it, the people business. There's very few people that come out of college or wherever, and that's their first job. Very few. Yeah, there people isn't fall a into it. major. No, there should be at this point. <laughs> there should um, be. But how does, that, how does that happen? How do you fall into recruiting? So um, I worked in the White House for a man by the name of Eli Siegel. And Eli had run the 92 campaign. He was an incredible father figure mentor to me. My first book is dedicated to him, actually. And 
as the 96 campaign is rolling around, I walk into his office and I'm like, so I'm ready to get back on the campaign trail. He was about to leave AmeriCorps. Oh, sorry, small part of the story. In the White House, I helped create uh, AmeriCorps, which is the Your national program service officer, program. Right, okay. right, right. So we had a million young people have now served in this incredible program. So the thing that I went there to do actually happened, and we did it. We, it, it, it was, it was, it had started. We sworn in the first class. We sworn in the second class. We'd done it. It was like we did the thing we came to do. He was leaving to go run the Welfare to Work initiative. To, 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 to basically uh, transform welfare as we know it. And I was like, well, I'm going to leave too. I think I'll get back on the campaign trail. And he said to me in the way that only a true mentor and father figure can say, he used to like rub his hands like this whenever he was like delivering news. And he was like, <laughs> well, tell. well, Laura, you're kind of, you're kind of too old now to get back on a campaign bus and eat cold pizza and sleep <laughs> in high school gymnasiums. I was all of like 25, which yeah. is like, basically dog years it's like a billion in campaign staffer years and he's like you're and you're kind of too young to be the domestic policy advisor so you're sort of in between go talk to my friend arnie miller he runs the biggest search firm in the country that does exclusively mission-driven nonprofit right. advocacy work he'll find you a job in the nonprofit sector and you'll come back in four years and do something big on al gore's campaign and i was like great sounds terrific two days later i'm sitting at the um the Mayflower Hotel. I'm having coffee with Arnie, who, by the way, my second book is dedicated to. I love and that you do that. By the way, I love dedicating your work to your mentors. I mean, yes. that's. I mean, that's yeah. a, that. That's a tribute. That's a. That's a tip of the hat. Well, I mean, they've made me who I am. So I sat down with him, and he was like, "Ah, you don't want to work for the nonprofits. You want to come work for me." And I was like, "Okay." All I knew about him at this time was that he ran something called a headhunting firm, and his work was in Boston. And now at this point, I'm am dating the guy you bring home to mother, and he's about to move to Boston to get a PhD in uh, in economics. And I was like, "Well, okay, I'll come work for you." And he's like, "Great." And I was like, "What do you What do you do?" <laughs> And, and that's how I became a headhunter. <laughs> it's it's crazy. So go back to the early, you know, for, for me and I talk about it all the time. I talk about the art and the science of yeah. the people business. Yeah. Talk about those first, you know, those early days in recruiting. What were what were some of those tough lessons for you? Or maybe like something <laughs> that you thought it would be. And yeah. let's take it back to, I don't want to date the total years on this, but there was a lot of technology that we have now that wasn't even a, a dream back then. I mean, there was, yes. there was fax machine, you know, we're talking about faxing resumes. We're talking about, when yes. people say Rolodexes, they're not talking about your network. They're talking about an actual physical Rolodex. Yes. I've heard stories of people deli hand delivering resumes. Yes. But we, the all of that. people art, the people art, the connecting, yes. getting on the phone and talking is still real. I remember uh, the, the, there was a woman who, who, who worked in our office and she had, she had a Rolodex and for people who don't know what a Rolodex <laughs> is, it's literally like this gigantic wheel of like tiny little cards that yep. you just kind of like flip through and you like find in alphabetical order where the person she had these two enormous ones that were like you were big they were they were like wheels they like were like truck wagon, wheels on a desk wagon wheels like yeah huge. wagon wheels that's and, a better and, analogy and, and yeah. anytime <laughs> we had a fire uh like a fire drill she would like put one under one arm and one under the other and she'd like go downstairs she's like i'm like she wasn't she couldn't it's her database she couldn't leave it like that's God. her value so, so analog like, talk about analog downstairs Jeez. in her giant four inch heels with her giant you know 40 inch <laughs> wagon wheel rolodexes and i forgot about her until you just said that just now because we didn't we didn't have technology like it's mm -hmm. really easy to google somebody now and find out everything we didn't have linkedin where you could no. just look at their resume no you can find anything in seconds yeah so the first lesson i learned is when you're laura gassner from isaacson miller nobody gives a flying whatever 
when you're Laura Gaston from the White House, it works a whole lot better. So that was the first lesson I learned is that I needed to start off with something more interesting than right. my name and some firm they'd never heard of. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think the biggest lesson that I took from that now in hindsight was that I thought that it was a, I thought that it was a, a, a business based in numbers. So if you're just doing staffing, you're trying to like, like fill as many positions as you can as fast as you can. That's numbers. You like have to call a thousand people right. to get five hundred call you back it's to get two hundred res. It's a funnel. But when you're doing executive search, it's really about connecting to that person and understanding what really drives them and knowing that it's a long game. And that's hard to balance the long game when you're also balancing the short game of my boss is wondering, do I have to pool? Am I making <coughs> quarterly numbers? We're going to get there this year. That's a challenge. That, that, it's interesting that you bring that up because I started in contingency like a lot of people do. And, it, and, and I always come from the school of the long game. I mean, I built, like you, I built my career on the long game. I built it. I mean, every 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 guest I have, it's all every, relationships. It's all relationships. But when you're when you're when you're in the for profit business and you're trying to close deals to make that commission, it's a tough balancing act and walking that tightrope between getting somebody hired as quick as possible so I could get that commission check, and making sure that they're the right person for themselves, having the candidate's best interest, and balancing it with the client, the company getting the best possible candidate. Right, because what you know now that you didn't know when you first started is that the candidates who you place in the right positions will grow and they'll thrive and they'll hire you to hire more people for them. And the candidates who aren't mm -hmm. right and that you treat respectfully, I mean, they're also the ones who are going to call you when they land somewhere else that's good. Like, it's all about relationships. So Look, it's future money. How amazing is it the first time that you get a call from somebody that you placed or somebody you got maybe really far down the line and they could, said, and I get these a bunch lately. They're like, hey, Adam, um, I'm in a new job here and I know you didn't hire me, but we spoke about three months ago and I just love the way that you operated and we have opportunities here. I literally have a client right now where that happened. And I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, all right. Like I did something. Is, yeah. And you probably wouldn't say this about yourself, but my guess is the conversation really meant, went more like, I loved how you operated and you were the only person in this field I've ever, ever come across who didn't treat me like garbage. I have heard that a couple of times and that upsets me about the industry. And I think yes. that's kind of the reason why I do this show is to shed a light on the good recruiters on the right way to, to do yes. things here. What What's similar about politics and recruiting? Uh, you have to keep a lot of secrets. Even <laughs> <laughs> you just spoke about. You have to keep a lot of secrets. I mean, I joke around all the time. I joke around with you in the pre-show that, you know, I whenever anyone's like, well, you keep the secret from me. I'm like, you don't get as far as I got in politics or executive search if no you way. can't keep everybody's secrets. But really, it, what it comes down to is at the end of the day, people aren't buying your capability. They're buying their trust in you. They're buying right. your potential. They're buying the promise. Like all of those things that, that make you who you are are usually not things that you've already demonstrated. Their promise, their expectation, their hope. Like we all wanna buy into optimism and idealism and we wanna believe the person can do it, but the way that we do it is by understanding their story story like nobody like, we don't vote for a candidate on their policy papers right we don't hire no. a candidate on their resume we no. hire them based on the story they tell us about why they do what they do and I think that's the same and I think for me it was heightened because the work I did was for nonprofits and, and mission-driven organizations There's the why mattered the why the why the why matters and I, I talk a lot about the how now lately Laura I talk a lot about the how we do things 
the how we go about our why, which is a big piece. I want to double back and actually want to talk about AmeriCorps um, for for a moment here, and that that had to be an incredible experience. Do you think you know looking back on the on the why that was created? Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a place for that in organizations today in certain companies? Is there is there a function of that that needs to we need to get back to those values? Is it missing? Of which values? What AmeriCorps was based on? The oh, community. sure, yeah. I mean, look, I'm. I get asked all okay look I make my living now as a motivational speaker and I get asked all the time whether I think motivation is useful and and the truth is I don't right like that's like the big thing I don't think it's useful I think accountability is useful I think Mm -hmm. uh, community is useful I think I think when you think about motivation and you think about discipline that means you have to wake up every single day and re-motivate yourself every single day and recommit to the thing you're going to do and I don't know about you but like it's been a long year and a half and re-motivating myself every day to get up and work out when I don't have to put on pants that have a button on them. <laughs> that's hard, right? That's hard. <laughs> but if I have a friend, like we, we um, I'm on a competitive rowing team and we took our rowing machines, you know, from the boathouse and set them all up in my garage. And oh, man. We can, you know, we, I've got a, I've got a big garage so we can put, you know, three of them six feet apart. If I know at 5 a.m. my friend's showing up in my garage, I'm going to get my butt up and I'm gonna go row with her. I wouldn't do that if I was on my own. And so I think what was so special about AmeriCorps was it was about communities showing up for each other and together making the world a better place. And I think that's the first thing that I think is really important that I think is useful today and that companies can use. And I think the second thing is that because of, we, ha- we haven't had the draft in this country in several decades. Thank God. Well, I I actually going to argue that thank God point because well right yeah let me take a step back I know yeah. where you're going with this okay so I think that some form of compulsory service doesn't have to be military service but could be community service could be teaching could be uh, uh, anything AmeriCorps Peace Corps doesn't make a difference but some sort of service where you leave your community and you serve somebody who doesn't look like you gives us more empathy gives us more understanding of what other people are going through gives us more compassion and I think this this feeling that we can be in this sort of private silo, get our own news from one place, get our own experience from another place, send our kids to private school, live on a private street. I think that it's taken away some of what has made America great, which is actually the fact that we're all in this together. It's interesting you say that. I had a conversation with my buddy from Israel who's in the Israeli army, and I, I agree with that too. It, it, it just, it, it, it brings people together. Yeah. You have the loyalty, you have the patriotism, and you, and you, it's a service. Yes. And people understand, yes, you go through that basic training in the Israeli army, but not everybody is, you know, an elite, you know, special ops. Right. Right. They they customize it based on, on what your skill set is. And I want to go back to this idea of community, which I, I would say really probably is, it's a cornerstone of, of your career. And you went on to found or co-found a few groups and organizations based on networking, right, and, and mm-hmm. forming communities like She Gives and the nonprofit uh, professional advisory group. Um, how did you How did you ensure those core values when you became a founder and built your own companies? Mm. So I had sp- I spent uh, five years at, uh, at Isaacson Miller, which is, as I said, I think the marquee search firm in the country doing specifically nonprofit work, for-profit firm doing nonprofit work. And as you know, the way that retained executive search firms work is it's one third of the first year's cash compensation. Mm-hmm plus 25% of anybody else you might hire that just happens to come out of the pool. 
Now, when I was looking for the chief strategy officer of an enormous international foundation, that search was going to pay like, I don't know, $600,000, right? Yeah. So our fee would be 200K. Awesome. But if I'm doing a search for a local domestic violence shelter for an executive director, that position's maybe going to pay 60K. So our fee is 20, possibly. Usually we had a minimum fee of 30 or so, but let's just say 20. So if you are me and you're being judged at the end of the day by the number of searches you close and the revenue you bring in, who are you more incentivized to spend mm -hmm. your time with, the 200K fee or the 20K fee? It's the 200K fee. But here's the other trick question. Which search do you think is actually harder? Yeah. Right? The domestic violence shelter is a way harder search, and that organization needs that money much oh, such more. A balance. And so there I was sitting there feeling like, okay, I am incentivized to give the last 5% of my day to the clients who need mm. me the most. And also, when I do find the candidate, I now have to negotiate their salary. So if I negotiate a higher salary, I'm making a bigger fee. And the whole thing just didn't sit right with me. I just felt like mm. I was being reverse incentivized and I was being incentivized to not share with my colleagues, to not give them ideas of candidates, to not send work their way. It was just, it didn't make sense. So I, I marched into my boss's office and I was like, there's a better way to do it. And he was like, there's the door. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you can either and choose to do things our way or you can leave. And mm. once I realized I wasn't solving the problem I thought I was solving, I realized that I was actually a problem for my clients. Yeah, you so weren't you weren't you weren't serving them. That's 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 crazy. And you I mean you went on to sell to you sold uh MPAG in 2015 and tell me how the story goes. I mean, what drew you back into politics? Was it Hillary? Well, so I founded Was yeah, so I founded MPAG. I founded MPAG um, when I left Isaacson Miller. I just was like, "There's a better way to do it." We changed the way we did it. We 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 broke the 400 to 500 hours that go into any search down to its component parts, and we said. We weren't charging hourly, but we said we're going to create custom experiences for our clients so that if the search was more complex, they paid us more, but also we allowed them to let us teach them how to do it so that that domestic violence shelter could find a foundation to pay for the search because we were actually teaching them how to do the work so we were leaving capacity with the end it. of the day. So it was a great way to actually build the sector while we built what we did. And Smart. All the big firms were like, you're crazy. You're leaving all this money on the table. And we're like, yeah, the need is endless. Like, there's so much work to it's go around. It's a long game. It's, it's being a disruptor. Again, it's a exactly. long game. So I had, we were disruptors. And it was my job to be, like, the moxie-driven founder getting up in potential clients' faces, just being like, there's a better way. And after about the 10-year mark or so, I noticed that we started spawning a lot of competition. And you know that's how you know you've made it, right? Like right when people copy you, mm -hmm. when people copy you. You know that you know that you're in. So um, I, I, and I really liked the innovation part of it. I liked figuring out how do we incentivize our team to share, to work better, to do the things that we think uphold our values, and not just give them bonuses based on revenue, but give them bonuses based on what we called like being a good you know corporate citizen, like being a good community member in our right. company. So we would actually there was cash on the dollar or cash on the barrel for things like helping someone else with a sale or transitioning a relationship to somebody else or wow, that's a crazy concept. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right? Like, I mean, like if 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 a 
former candidate hires you to do a search, you actually get part of that fee because you were the relationship. Like that's, we incentivize the right behavior by paying for it. Like it's just not that hard. Like you want to teach someone to do something. You, you want to train a dog to do something, you give them a treat every time they do a good thing. You give your team a treat every time they do a good thing. People do more good and things. Like it just isn't that complicated. No, it's yeah. it's 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 not. And I mean, looking I mean, looking back, I mean, listen, we could we could spend two hours talking about Hillary's you know campaign and what happened from that. We all know. Um, real quick, high level, what do you think was the biggest mistake that you know the campaign and Hillary could have done differently to change the results? Uh, I think <laughs> she could have not been Hillary. <laughs> Side, side I note. mean, it, it was DOA, right? It's it, it's she she was a problematic candidate from the start. So so I sold the company mostly because I hadn't learned anything new in a while. I built it. I wanted to keep innovating. My team mm -hmm. was like, oh my god, can we just take the car on the road and see how fast it drives? And I realized that I was the kind of like outspoken, moxie-driven leader. But what the team really needed was somebody who was really geeked out about the work and I just wasn't and so I turned to my business partner who was and I was like you should leave though I should I should leave and she was like no but it took five years I got out and it happened to coincide with Hillary's campaign Hillary wasn't my number one choice of the Democratic field but she was running and I was She's qualified she was more qualified than anybody who's ever run for the position ever that and, and that's and that's a fact like take if you it's take the politics side and look at it like from a recruiting standpoint yeah if you're looking at her experience and skill set yeah I mean we're talking a lifelong public servant lifelong and she had experience domestically internationally secretary Actually, of state I mean, you know yeah. I mean, like, in the white, I, mean I, I don't care I don't like you could be like a MAGA hat trumper and there's you cannot deny that she was qualified but you might not agree with her yeah you, or, you certainly may not like her I mean the right. likability factor too was the other tough part the likability factor was tough but here this is what I think is really interesting there are there are uh, uh, they did they did polls and there are polls that show that Pete she had a very high approval rating when she was secretary of state not much change between when she was secretary of state and when she ran for president and her likability factor was in the toilet when she yeah. ran for president because because in this country we like women who are in power we don't like women who want power and that's a huge problem now there are all sorts of problematic issues with Hillary and she's been problematic since she wore a headband and didn't want to bake cookies like back in 1991 <laughs> however it is a truism that in this country, we like women in power better than we like women who want power. And, and there's a big difference there. Um, complete side note here. I don't know if you had a chance. Hillary was on the Howard Stern show about a year and a half ago. Um, and I'm a huge Howard Stern fan from the point of interviewing. I mean, I yes. really, uh, I think he's the best interview on, on the face of the earth. And a couple of really interesting points from that interview. And if you haven't listened to it before, it's 100% worth you know going on YouTube, finding it and checking it out. Two things on that one. Howard talked about the Bill and Hillary love story, which I don't think I've ever heard before. I don't think I've ever heard it talk about, it. and it's fascinating. I mean, you're going back to the late 60s, early 70s law school when they yep. met, it's a tremendous story. But the thing that a lot of people talk about and knock on her is her relatability. And I think she even admits on that interview, like if she came on Howard, who invited her while she was running to come on, it could have been a big game changer to show how relatable she was to, mean, the, to the everyday person. That was one of the biggest yeah. knocks on her, that she wasn't likable or relatable. Yeah. Yeah. And she was, I mean, in person, she is warm and she's funny and she's soft and she's all the things. But, it, you know, I, I do think that women in politics are damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's mm. very, very difficult. I mean, fast forward 2021, we have a female vice president. How does that make you feel? Uh, it makes me feel great. Yeah. It makes me feel great. I am. I mean, it was 
I, I think what I posted on social media from the State of the Union was like the only thing better than the two women standing behind the podium, but you know, behind the man at the podium, it would be if one of the women was standing there. But you know, I, it, look, it's baby steps. I I also, you know, thought. It, you know, four years ago, I was like, you know, the first female president we get in the country is probably going to be a Republican, probably gonna be Nikki Haley, because it's just one less different, you know, like it's, it's one, one, one that's step that everyone else is kind of OK with. So, yeah. So so let's fast forward. You're yeah. you're a speaker, author, entrepreneur, self-described motivator and instigator, which I like. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite part of speaking to people? Yeah, I mean, like on stage. Yeah. Oh. There is something about just coming out and flying your freak flag and just being all you and some and saying something funny and somebody at stage left laughing and then saying something provocative and somebody at stage right going, oh, and that moment where you make a point and then you walk across the stage silently listening to like the breathing of 5,000 people in the audience while they're thinking inside their head about what you just said and then you walk and then you stop and then you land the next point and it's like, yeah. it is the very first talk I ever gave was the TEDx that I gave, which I can't even watch now because it's like so bad. <laughs> but I gave it for 2,600 people and it was terrifying. But the <clears throat> moment I said something funny and someone laughed, I was like, oh, I want more. I mean, I, 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 I kind of, that's got to be exhilarating. And I'm, I'm starting to take my baby steps into, into the world of speaking. I have some great things I'm working on here. Let's talk about that TEDx for a moment. Yeah. Um, and I urge everyone to, to check it out. And it, there's you some. Now that I just said it was terrible. No, but there's some, there's some high points and some low points. And I want to talk about a negative comment and how you responded to that. Let's talk about this for a second here. And this is four years ago, everybody. And, and, and. Literally there's a the negative, first speech I ever gave him. There's life. a negative comment, and this is how you reply to that. Quote, the truth is that I got suddenly and completely overwhelmed by the enormity of the audience and lost the trail right at that important pivot point. All of what you mentioned was in the original script, and I failed in my delivery. It has haunted me since. Quite frustrating. Does that still haunt you? Do you I mean, do you want to redo? <laughs> um, and I first did. of all, I appreciate your vulnerability and your openness back then, and you talked about this being one of your first ones and being able to handle that feedback. But like, do you want to redo? It wasn't even one of my first ones. It was literally my wow. first speech ever. And the way that you do a TEDx, you like go out there and you stand in the middle of the red circle. Red dot. And then <laughs> you like, yeah, and then you like do your thing. And I'll, I like, I talked like a TEDx talker, like you memorize a script. And now when I get on stage, I just tell stories. Like I'm at a cocktail party. I'm totally comfortable. It's so easy. Yeah. It's I'm just me. And I, because I had memorized the script, there was one line that I needed to say that was this major pivot point. And like I said, I forgot. You missed and it. This woman on social media, on, on YouTube, because, you know, whatever, she decided she could, like wrote this whole thing about how it was confusing and I, I should have said this and the real point would have been that and that would have made it better. And I was like, yeah. You're like, the why don't you try it, lady? There. Yeah, I, I mean, what I wanted to be like, screw you, yeah. like, you get up in front of 20s, but she was right, she was yeah. right, and so I was like, you know what, you're right, you're right. I did, yeah. and and her response to me was like, wow, okay, thank you. She like, applauded I just, you for the way you handled and responded, and that speaks, and that, and that and that speaks, and that speaks volumes. And now you can I always did have look, a redo, though. Years later, um, I, I was asked to give that talk at 
um, inbound at the giant yep. marketing conference at the Boston Convention Center in front of probably like 5,000 people or so. And I got up and I just did it and I told the story. And I like the way that I tell the story, it starts off with my story, Bill Clinton, then it moves to um, this thing about that there's 67,000 teddy bears that showed up in Newtown, Connecticut. Yep. And then it goes through about why that didn't actually solve the problem of gun control and you're yeah. making changes to big Talk first action. Now, I, I've done speaker training, I've done the whole thing. And one of my speaking coaches was like, I mean, to be honest, I don't care about you. Like you spend six minutes telling me about you before you get to the teddy bears. I don't really care. He's like, what if you walked out on stage and the first thing you said was 67,000. 67,000. That's the number of teddy bears that descended on the tiny town of Newtown, Connecticut when a gunman killed 20 children and six adults. Answering with teddy bears? 67,000. And then you talk about why that didn't happen. And immediately you're like, people are like, what? Huh? And that's how I tell the story now. It's completely different. I'm completely different. And it feels so much more right. Think about the learning experiences from your TEDx. Right. I mean, <laughs> yes. yeah, I mean, that's 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 what it's all about here. So let's, I mean, that let's... TEDx actually got some attention and then that got me an offer to speak um, in Idaho. Somebody was like, we saw your talk. It's great. Would you we'll fly you to Idaho for fifteen hundred dollars room and board? And I was like, wow, OK, got pay me plane, to talk. <laughs> went to, you're going to pay me to talk. I, I gave a 45 minute version of it where I literally clung to the lectern the entire time. And then I was like, oh, this is interesting. You're gonna after 20 years of doing consulting, where I had deliverables to be like, you're gonna fly me somewhere, put me up, fly me home, give me a check, and there's nothing, there's no homework. Nope. Tell me more about this job. Yeah, and, and I mean, and that's part of the attraction of the public speaking now. I mean, yeah. look at these these folks at command, six figure. It's big. It's, it's, big? it's big, and and I and I think we'll get back to it. You know, the world the world is opening back up, but I For I do sure. want to spend some time. Um, you know successful author uh to say the least here um before we get into the books uh what is what is the, the toughest part for you of the writing process <laughs> the writing <laughs> the writing is the toughest part no, of the writing process actually it's not it's not you, you're asking me this question at a some, very interesting some people time. say the marketing some people say you know the the press that goes along with it i'm curious uh, well so you're asking this question at a very interesting time because I literally just turned in the first draft uh, of my next book to my editor uh, Sunday night. So um, the, the way I answer the question now might be different than how I answer the question when the book comes out. For me, I'm a pretty fast writer. The writing's not hard. It's the thinking that's hard. I'm a slow thinker. Like it took me six weeks to write Limitless, but it took me 25 years and six weeks to come up with it. Like for me, I have to, I have to really understand and get, like you see a lot of bullshit speakers that are out there and they're giving book reports. They're talking about everybody else's ideas and they're just like, Yeah, they're just regurgitating. Exactly. Right. They're just reskinning it. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, that. why, like what, what makes a, like Don't who, get me who started are some of the that. best speakers you know? Oh man. Pick a, pick uh, an amazing speaker. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we talked about Gary Vee before, and I think the thing about Gary, Gary Vee is, is is that he doesn't prepare, and not only point zero zero percent of people could do what he does. And where does he speak from? Yeah, he speaks from the heart, and he speaks off the cuff. And he speaks from his experience, yeah. right? Like Albert Einstein, his, exp his experience, his exp his not somebody else's experience. His experience, but he, but he, but he also says that it's his experience, and he gets out there, and he he talks from his experience, and then he gives you a framework to follow. Albert Einstein said that all knowledge is experience, and I believe that. Like you don't know something until you've really experienced yeah. it. But I think if all knowledge is experience, all due respect to Al, 
that <laughs> all wisdom is framework. And what makes Gary amazing is that he comes out there and he speaks with passion and with experience and from his own real experience that he understands it and he knows it. But then he helps you to under, like step one, step two, step three, go. He helps it's, you it's understand you, it's, what it's, your it's message should be. It's not Absolutely. a book report. That's fascinating too. It's a great, it's a great kind of content. When people up there and they're, they're preaching to you and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm good on this. So right. talking about the book Limitless, um, who is it for and what do you want people to walk away from after reading it? So Limitless is a book for anybody who has followed the path that they thought they were supposed to follow, filling on all the checkboxes on everybody else's path to everyone else's idea of success. And they got to the top and they were like, the top of what? Like, I did all the things right. I'm supposed to be successful. Why aren't I happy? Because in 20 years of doing executive search, I realized that success doesn't equal happiness. It's 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 a different thing. It's what I in the book call consonance, which is this feeling of when what you do matches who you are. It's alignment. It's flow. It's it's when you are doing the work you feel like you were put on this earth to do. I feel it. I feel it right now. Um, who should who should pick it up? Who should go get it? Who should be reading it? I mean, I have... <laughs> anyone who wants to buy it? Anybody. Anyone who wants to buy it. No, I think, look, I think that if you are in a place in your life where you're like, I just, what I started doing before doesn't feel right for me now. The work that I was told I should do isn't enough. I've got the fancy car, the fancy house, all the things that's not enough. Or I'm young. I don't know. I'm not quite sure how to create a career that works for me. This book really does give you the framework because I break down continents into its four parts, which are calling, connection, contribution, and control. And each of us at every age and at every life stage want different amounts of those at different times. And so what made me successful as a recruiter was not that I went and I was like, okay, everybody wants a job with a good mission, a good business, a good leader, a good what, good money, good whatever. But I, I had to listen to them. Again, going back to the story, I had to listen to the story and understand what made them them so I could connect this checklist that I had and prioritize it in a way that actually made sense for them. And so if you're like, I'm thinking about the next thing I want to reinvent after the pandemic, when life goes back to normal is the normal I'm going back to really the life I want. This book really gives you a framework to get there. I, I love it. And it's interesting. And in, in, in the in the description in, in Limitless, uh, you said, quote, you've never met a revolution you didn't like. How, <laughs> yeah. can, how can people make a revolution for good in their life? And, and what do they do, need to do to make sure it's successful? Look, I uh, you don't want a failed revolution. That's the worst. So you don't want to be on the other side of history on that you one. You definitely don't want to be on the other side <laughs> of history. But look, I think that we have this idea in life that failure is finale. Like we get hired, we get paid, we get praised, we get promoted for doing a thing that we know how to do well. And we're so afraid to step to the left or step to the right because if we screw up, we're done. It's history. But the truth is that failure is not finale, it's fulcrum, right? It's where you mm -hmm. learn, and it's where you grow, and it's where you innovate and you change. Like every lesson I've ever had in my life has come out of something that didn't go as well as it should. Like Amen. you don't get better, right? Just doesn't make any sense. You don't get, you don't, you don't, like they say an unexamined life is not worth living. Who examines the successes? We examine the failure. So failure is not finale, it's fulcrum. And I think that um, the, the why, why this book is special and I think why it's resonated with so many people is that it helps people to understand that we can fail and we can grow and every five to seven years or so you're changing your life is changing so like even if one of the questions that I used to get asked when I, I did like a hundred podcasts when the book first came out and a question I got asked all the time none was, as good as this though so let's no, just no, set no, the record straight because right? you will not ask this question this question I got asked all the time is what would you tell your 22 year old self and I was like 
my 22 year old self who's listening to a podcast that was recorded over the internet on my mobile phone like <laughs> not like like we said like we were still carrying wagon wheels or rolodexes like oh, yeah. none of those things existed so even if i did know who i was the whole world has changed so every five to seven years you're going to change the world's going to change life is going to change explore the failure let it be your fulcrum and that's how you end up having a great life i love it and, and, and a concept i've been embracing a lot laura is this concept of chapters and seasons of your mm-hmm. life and that's kind of how i how i i approach here so let, let's bring it home um what what does the word authentic mean to you when someone asks you like you know I've heard a lot of explanations. What does authentic mean to you? Oh boy. Um, For me, I think authentic is knowing who you're actually trying to impress. Hmm. Right? Like I think all of us try like, oh, it's about being the real you and you know, not hiding whatever. But like all of us have somebody in life that we're trying to impress. And if that person is somebody who is meaningful to you, then they won't just love you, they'll actually see you. And there's a real big difference between being feeling loved and feeling seen. And I think being authentic is when you can be who you are and be seen and also still be loved. Yeah, that, that that's powerful, and and I I think we're getting to the to the end of this pandemic. The the there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Every day is is getting better. Um, yes. But there's also obviously been a, a, a ton of devastation. I mean, we look at India, Brazil, everything that's happening bad right now. Yes. But I want to look at the good. And there's been a lot of silver linings that have come out of the last you know, year and a half. I'd love if you could share a personal silver lining and a professional silver lining that you've experienced during the pandemic. Well, for me, there's no question. The, the personal silver lining is that I have a son who is going to be living in a college dorm room 95 days from today crazy (laughs) crazy to think how fast time goes not not (laughs) that i'm counting or anything but the fact that i have been able to get this extra stolen time with him in his senior year of high school has been a gift that i i will never take for granted 100 percent. and to be able to spend time getting to know my younger son at the same time i'm mm-hmm. i'm normally you know traveling one hundred and fifty thousand miles a year so to be yeah. here in the moments of the heartbreak and the joy and the just the normalcy of everyday life has been incredible and professionally uh it's it has been understanding that i maybe was aiming too low before like i used to think that a bucket list event was five thousand people i used to think i'm a speaker because i go to an event and I speak on stages and then suddenly COVID happened and there was no speaking, there were no stages, there were no events, there were no people. And I had to understand, well, it's not that I'm a speaker. I'm actually a thinker and a writer and a coach and a motivator and uh, somebody who spent 25 years thinking about talent. Hmm. Now, what's the problem I want to solve? I want to help get people unstuck so they can live their best lives. What's the solution that I bring to it, I bring this formula of consonants that I talk about in Limitless. And what's the medium through which I can do it? Well, it's no longer a stage and and an event. It's a webcam and a camera and a microphone, and mm-hmm. I can actually reach more people. So it was, it was helping me met a moment. I was defining what I was doing, what success meant in the way that it's always been done before. And I had to actually become Limitless myself and it. figure out that it was more than what I've <clears throat> do, been doing before. I mean, we so powerful what you just said there. And, and this moment for me, for so many other people, has been a pause that we never knew we needed. Yeah. And it came at the right time. Yes. I mean, I speak about it all the time, how I wouldn't have innovated, pivoted, shifted my business to what it is now if it wasn't for the pandemic. I'd be doing more of the same and expecting the same results. Yes. I yes. wouldn't have invested into myself. I wouldn't have invested into the company. Laura, what is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every single day of your life? 
You're just not that important. I love that. <laughs> You're not as important as you freaking think, except to your mom and your dad. No, I mean, everybody I, got, else. I, got, I, got, I got advice when I was like, I'm building my, like, I, I, I had just launched my business. I just launched my family. I'm sitting on a bunch of boards. Like, I was busy. <laughs> I was important to everyone. And I was stressed out. And I was yelling at my kids. And this woman who's this, like, 70-year-old old, like, old lady from Queens who, like, sold a business for, like, a bajillion dollars. She's like, I was a, I'm a very important person. And she was like, she's like, I don't understand what the problem is. You have a happy marriage, happy kids, good business. What's going on? I'm like, I just, I yell at my kids too much. And she's like, well, tell me about your day. And I told her how I could be all things to all people and here's my 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 trio my palm trio tells you when it was my oh, palm trio um i could be at the i could be at the, the the playground and also with you know with my clients and she's like you're not with anybody then she goes let me tell you something you're just not that important and what she was trying to tell me was figure out where you are that important and double down there and everything else say no everything else push away and it was just a great bit of advice to help me focus on what actually mattered to me and what didn't? It, it, it completely separated the signal from the noise. I, I love it. That's tremendous. And last but not least, you know, you look back on your life and you look back at those times when maybe things weren't going so well and you had to pull yourself up and you had to reach down deep inside and harness that inner tenacity and find that compass and use that map to get you to where you are now. And in the same breath, on the flip side, looking back at your life, your career, and you want to show gratitude and just... Everything that you've built, your family, your life, your business. Laura Gaston Otting, what is your North Star? <laughs> I. It really comes down at the end of the day to when I am dead and gone, I want people to say my life was just a little bit better because she was in it. That's it. I don't want a full page obituary. I don't need people sobbing at my funeral. I just, I just want to improve i want to leave it better than i than i found it and at the end of the day that's that's really it it's not about money or fame or fortune it's just it's just about leaving it better than i found it lgo thank you for spending time with us today this has been awesome i hope you enjoyed it and i hope everyone listening really is taking away a couple of things at the very least i hope you enjoyed this fun conversation because i know i did for sure laura where could folks find you where could they connect with you where could they find the books where could they learn more yeah, so you called me LGO. All my friends call me LGO, and I'm at Hey LGO, H E Y L G O, on all the socials. And HeyLGO.com is the best way to get uh, to my website. Good shortcut. If you are listening and you're like, calling, connection, contribution, control, I don't know. I don't know how much I have, how much I need. There are four questions you need to ask yourself, and you can find those four questions at myfourquestions.com. I love it. I want everyone to check that all out. And I want to thank everybody for listening today. If this episode resonated with you, reach out to Laura Connect. Go pick up those books. And if it resonated with you specifically around this podcast, please leave a review, rating, share it. It goes a long way, people. You know where to find out more episodes at thepodcast.com and all of our other social media channels. I want to thank you all for spending some time with us. I know everyone's time is valuable. Remember, we're not done with this pandemic yet. So stay six feet apart. Wash your hands. Take care of each other. Look out for each other. Catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. 
and to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.